And there ends the reading, John 7, 14 through 24, as we continue our study in this seventh chapter. Today's message, by what standard? By what standard? See, we live in a culture where the expectation that people will live their lives according to the standard or the rule of the law of God is, to put it mildly, considered unrealistic. And anyone who dares claim that people should be accountable to that standard, the standard of the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments, are considered to be either insane or judgmental, which is far worse. I think we'd all agree that there is an abysmal lack of biblical knowledge in our society, but we rarely meet a non-Christian who cannot quote verbatim the words of Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, the idea that many people have is that no matter how sinful and wicked a person's life may be, we must never judge them. We must never pass any critical assessment of their behavior or their character for any reason. Um, We must never pass judgment upon their lifestyle. And, of course, that becomes an excuse to tolerating all kinds of wicked behavior. Excuse me, wicked behavior, and we are living with the aftermath of decades of that kind of thing. Even many Christians get confused about this business of what is the standard of judgment and, and what are we supposed to do about assessing how other people speak and act and behave. So it is fitting, therefore, that with these verses we've read here today, we should spend a few moments learning what God's Word really has to say on this subject of the standard by which we are to judge. And I suggest that even a small amount of reflection on that will show that judging the behavior and attitude of others, as well as ourselves, more importantly, is something that we do all the time. It's an inescapable part of human life. Now, as we read in these verses, 14 through 24... We have seen that there are, and I'm going to, well, let me suggest there are three things that the Lord would have us consider today. And I'm going to do something maybe atypical. I'm going to start in reverse of these three things and sort of go from the reverse order to the front of the order, starting with number three and going to number one based on the verses. So look again at verse 24. This is the first thing. By by what standard do we judge? Jesus says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with correct or right judgment. Another translation, stop judging the way things, by the way things look, but judge by what is right. You know, if you recall from last time, we learned that Jesus' own brothers, his own kinfolk, did not really believe him to be the Messiah and had encouraged him to go up to Jerusalem and it was the occasion of this one of the great feasts of the entire year, the Feast of Tabernacles. So they said he could perform, therefore, great miracles so that people would follow him. But you remember he declined that invitation. But now we see here that he did go up to the feast, but he did not go with the fanfare and publicity that his brother suggested. No, he went quietly. And when the time was right, when it was appropriate, he began to teach the people. And in this, he makes a point to his enemies, the Jews, about true 
and false judgment. And the right and true standard or rule by which judgments are to be made. See, they were judging by appearances. Now, that is something that I guess we're all prone to do from time to time. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the fact that in a big city like, I'll say New York City, many people travel about on bicycles. It's especially common in New York City. If you watch any videos or you know, um, documentaries or whatever, you see people riding bicycles all over the place. So it should come as no surprise to know that an expensive bicycle that's left unattended on the streets of New York has a better than average chance of being stolen. And so many bike owners have come up with a smart way to ward off any potential thieves. And one example is they will take duct tape and wrap the entire frame of the bicycle with duct tape and then they will spray paint over the duct tape with black spray paint. And with that and a few other little touches, a very expensive bike starts to look like a piece of junk. Bikes that look like junk are almost never stolen because potential thieves have judged the value of that bicycle by its appearance, you see. It's a natural tendency. Well, now here we see that the Jews were ready to condemn Jesus as a sinner because of the appearance of what they thought was a violation of God's law. See, he had healed a lame man, a crippled man, on the Sabbath day. We actually learned about that back in chapter 5. Now, those men, these leaders of the Jews, these Pharisees, in rushing to judge Jesus, had forgotten that the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That was never meant to prevent works of necessity or mercy. Now, there is no doubt that Jesus had indeed performed a work, quote-unquote, on the Sabbath day. But in doing that, Jesus was neither breaking the law of God as regarding the Sabbath, nor was he trying to set aside that law. He had done nothing that was forbidden by the law of God. Now, it may have been permitted forbidden by their Talmudic traditions and their rules, but not the law of God. So those men were judging on an appearance rather than on the truth of the situation. And oh, what lessons we may learn from our Lord's rebuke of those men. Look again at verse 24. Do not judge by appearance, he says, but judge with right judgment. And I wonder today, how many of us have ever been deceived by appearances? Now, let me suggest to you, you can be deceived by an appearance of good or goodness. You know, some of us, um, all a person has to do in order for us to give them a, a passing A-plus grade of being a good Christian, they, they just show up for church in an outward profession of religious faith, attend church three or four months uh, sun, out of Sundays out of the month, and automatically we assume that they are quote, a a good Christian, a good person. And in doing that, we forget. Let me me back up. It's okay. I'm happy if somebody goes to church every Sunday of a month. But let's not forget that it is the daily practice of our faith, the daily obedience and walking in full compliance with the law of God and the choices a person makes in their day-to-day life. Those are the habits Those are the conduct, both public and private, and the character. Those are the true evidences 
of what a person is. But on the other hand, and this is probably more common, we are prone to be deceived or make judgments based on appearances when somebody looks to be not very godly. You know, when, when there's an appearance of something evil. Some of us are very quick indeed to write people off as not being Christians at all because of a few faults or inconsistencies of their character. And in our own minds at least, we will rip their names from the book of life because of one wrong word or one failing in their lives. Friends, we would do all well to remember that the best human beings are still human, even at their very best. And that even the most godly man or woman may become overcome with temptation, yet they still are truly godly and Christian at heart. All of us would do well not to rush to conclude that all is evil where there is an occasional appearance of evil. Even the holiest of men may fall and stumble for a time, and yet God's grace in their lives may yet gain the victory. And we must remember that there is a world of difference Indeed, an eternity of difference between that unsaved man or woman who has no hesitations at all about offending God by the consistency of their sinful lifestyle and that versus the truly saved man or woman who for a time falls into some sin but who later truly repents by God's grace and is restored to full fellowship. And I ask you to look well at the Lord's words here. And also, hear, hear his words in Matthew 7, for that matter, because the exhortation there is not, do not judge. That's not what he says. Now, the exhortation is, judge correctly. And the only standard by which we may be assured that we are judging others rightly and correctly and properly is the standard of God's law word, rightly understood and rightly interpreted. All right, so that's the first thing that we take away from this, is that the answer to the question of by what standard is the standard of God's law. Judgments are unavoidable. They're, they're inescapable. We're constantly making judgments. And then, the, the, according to that, there's only one standard by which we can make those judgments. That is true and right. But the second thing is, Christians who manifest a self-exalting attitude are acting contrary to the ways of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Or another way of putting it, those who teach their own ideas are trying to get honor for themselves, but those who try to bring honor to the one who sent them to speak the truth, there is nothing false in them. Now, this is especially relevant in our time where, you know, we have lots of uh, mega churches with big shot, big steeple pastors and false teachers in theirs and other pulpits. Now, look, let me, let me just say very quickly, I'm not saying because a church is a, quote, mega church, uh, because a church has multiple campuses and hundred, say hundreds, thousands and thousands of members, that automatically means they're a false church. I know many of them are in terms of false worship, false teachings, but that doesn't mean all of them are. So I want to be fair about that as best as I can. See, it's a mighty temptation for anyone involved in any phase of the church's ministry 
to become puffed up with pride and to be seeking their own glory rather than God's. And you don't have to have a megachurch to fall into this sin. Uh, some years ago, the business magazine, Forbes magazine, ran an article about the hiring practices of a company. Uh, this company, Quad Graphics, used to have a location not far from where the church I pastored uh, in, in upstate New York is. And according to that article, the company has as a practice of not hesitating at all about hiring people whom general society would dismiss as losers and outcasts. And the, an official with Quad Graphics told that magazine, and I'm quoting him here, said, we hire people who have no education or little education. We hire people, the kind of people, who when they come in for a job interview, they hang their heads and look at their feet. And they don't join our company because of high wages, he said. We pay only a few dollars above minimum. But he said, those people are eager to come to us because we offer them a chance to make something of themselves. End of quote. We should always remember, friends, the Lord delights in calling workers into the ministry of the church who look down at their feet when they apply for the job. Whether we notice it in ourselves, the very desire to magnify ourselves in doing the Lord's work is a bad symptom, whether it's in ourselves or we see it in others. It's a sure sign that something is wrong inside. See, in Jesus' time, those scribes and Pharisees, the, the leaders of the Jews who so hated Jesus, they were consumed with that kind of attitude. They wanted the praise and adoration of others. It's interesting to compare those men and their attitudes with that of the Apostle Paul. You know, he was totally opposite of them. Uh, all, of, all of the New Testament epistles that uh, bear his name are, are filled with examples of his own humility and his own zeal for the glory of Christ. He said such things, and I'm quoting him here, I am less than the least of all the saints. I am not worthy to be called an apostle, he wrote. I am chief of all, among sinners, he said. He said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servant for his sake. So there's a very simple test that we can apply to ourselves, to any preacher or pastor, or any and everyone who claims to be doing the Lord's work through ministry, to demonstrate whether they are true or false. Ask yourself this question. As they speak, or as you consider the emphasis of their work, what is the main object that is exalted in that person's speech or in that work? Is it Christ and his church and his kingdom, or is it something else? All right, then the third thing that we take away from these verses, we're going back again in reverse order. We're up to verses 16 to 17. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. That's from the ESV translation. In other words, uh, this is a different translation. He says, the, the things that I teach are not my own, but they come from him who sent me. If people choose to do what God wants, they will know that my teaching comes from God and not from me. So then, if we desire a closer walk with God, if we want more than just superficial knowledge, that we must strive for an honest obedience to his will. That's the third thing. We must be striving for an honest obedience to his will. Earlier, I said that, you know, we live in a society 
where the expectation of a person holding to a standard of righteous judgment based on God's law uh, is, is kind of outlandish to most people's minds. Well, our society is equally characterized by a confusion over what truth is. And that's not surprising. These things go together. Some people look around at all of the religions in the world, at all of the divisions among them, and then they look at the Christian church, and they see all the different denominations, and they decide, well, there's no way to know who among them is right or wrong. And so, for many, that thereby becomes an excuse to claim that all religions are equally true on some level, or for other people, that all religions are equally false. I'm sure that I have shared something about this man and the book I'm getting ready to mention on a previous occasion. In the seven years that I've been here, I know I've mentioned it at least once before, but I'm mentioning it again here. It's about the famous British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who wrote a book, probably his most popular as far as the, the general population. You used, to be, you used to see it displayed front and center in just about all the, the bookstores when there used to be a lot of bookstores, you know, like B. Dalton and Walden and Barnes and Noble. They all had it faced out so you couldn't miss it. The title is, Why I Am Not a Christian. Shortly after that book was published, someone asked Russell what he would say to God if upon his death he suddenly found himself in the presence of Almighty God. And Russell said, well, I should say to God, why did you make it so hard for intelligent men to believe in you? Bertrand Russell died in 1970. And my guess is that by now, he being such an intelligent man, he has learned very well what a pitiful and lame excuse that is for unbelief. Because you see, my friends, God's word declares that just because a man or a woman, and I mean any man or woman, who do not know about Christ Jesus, that doesn't mean they are thereby excused from the judgment of Almighty God. Paul referred to this in his first letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read these verses, 18 through 22. I'm reading it from the NIV this time. Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth because of their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So that statement by Russell right there has proved utter nonsense. Paul continues, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature... They have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And that, we see, corresponds to what Peter the Apostle said to Jesus at the end of the last chapter. For after the others had fallen away and they refused to walk with Jesus anymore, and Jesus said, are you also going to run away? And Peter says, confesses for himself and the other disciples, we believe and we know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we learn then how that the submission of our minds and hearts to the law word of God, that's the first step in gaining true knowledge. But you know, there are many people 
They don't want God's way. Like Bertrand Russell and many others, they believe that it's their way of thinking. And the way that they live, that's the final court of appeal for what they will believe to be true or false in this world. But in wrapping this up, let's remember that the message of God's divine word is this. Yes, there are many pretended standards by which a person may live their lives. But if you really want to know the truth, if you really desire to know the meaning of life, then follow the only standard, the only true rule of faith and obedience, the law, word of God, in Holy Scripture. Believe and follow the message of the kingdom. Because although there are many so-called standards, there is only one that is true and that is right. And by God's grace, let us hold fast to that rule. Let us pray.